Good and restful morning to you. I am so glad that we come together on another Sabbath, a day in which God gives us this beautiful opportunity to rest, to meditate, and to begin to think about what he is doing in our lives. Now, throughout this whole quarter, we're going to be talking about rest. But before, I want to invite you to just pause for a moment with me. Breathe in and pray. God, thank you so much because in the midst of our busyness, you open for us space. Space to think, space to connect, space to encourage one another, space to rest. And may the Prince of Peace the Jesus that calls us to come to him when we are heavy laden. Give us the respite we so crave. For we pray in his name. Amen. So I've heard it said before that rhythms and routines are central to determining the ebb and flow of life. And sometimes it happens without even noticing it. And you're driving back from work, you're going home thinking about what you will do that afternoon. And I bet you don't even think, not a second thought is given to the route you took or to how many stops you needed to make. Your brain is on, on cruise control. It's become habitual for you to drive that same route at that same time, at that same speed. Oh, each and every one of us has a routine. Mine begins at 5 a.m. when our little puppy wakes up and needs to go to the bathroom. I play with her for a bit, look at my garden, think about the dew on the flowers, praise God for his blessings, study my Bible, and then chaos ensues. Chaos ensues because my two boys also have a routine, and part of their routine is to come up at 6 a.m., rain or shine, crawl into bed with us, and yell snuggle time. And so routines, well, routines determine the rhythms of lives. Habits are the liturgies to which our existence is set to. When we talk about this idea of rest in the midst of busyness, we think about rest as a necessary component as we live lives that are, as one sociologist defines it, described by a constant state of anxiety. Now, restlessness is the plague of the 21st century, but it's not something new. It's something that is embedded in our DNA, and it's something from which God wants to give you rest. So God wants you to develop new habits. He wants to, you to develop a liturgy that is oriented towards him. He wants you to develop rhythms of life that produce peace and tranquility. Now, it's funny to note that you can be in the presence of God. You can have a rich devotional life. You can dedicate time to prayer and study and worship, and yet 
he can still struggle with restlessness. Think about the Israelites. Think about the Israelites as we open our study today in the book of Numbers, the 11th chapter. Now, they have seen the hand of God. They were there when the Lord opened a path to walk on through the sea. They witnessed their jaws dropped as God delivers in loving, caring, compassion them from slavery and bondage. They were busy as they painted on the doorposts of their home all those years ago in Egypt. And now here they are on the cusp of the promised land. God is ready to deliver them a space of rest a place to escape from all the restlessness that has defined their lives as former slaves. What is their reaction to this God? Well, look at what happens. I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 11, and you're going to see something, something introduced into the rhythm of the Israelites' existence as they traverse through the desert. Now, Numbers 11, chapter 1, the, pe- the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. And then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died, died down. So notice that Israel has moved into the desert And for some reason that we still don't know, they are complaining. They are complaining in the sight of the Lord. Now, here's what's most interesting. The author of Numbers wants to create a clear connection between the presence of the Israelites and the presence of God. So close that when the Israelites open their mouths, their words travel straight to Yahweh's ears. So this is no separate deistic type of relationship. This is an intimate connection that God has with his people. They are dependent on him for shelter and for food. There's a cloud that follows them by day, a pillar of fire by night. Manna, manna fills the ground every morning. And it seems that the big questions, those big issues that afflict human beings are all taken care of. Do we have shelter? Is there going to be food in our stomachs? What else is there to worry about? Well, notice what happens in the next section of Numbers chapter 11. Again, the people begin to complain. My Bible describes them at this point as a rabble. It's interesting that the author of the Hebrew Bible uses that word. No longer are they individuals, but now they're a collective collection of groans, aches, and complaints. And I want to posit to you that that's the first thing that restlessness does. Restlessness robs you from your individuality. It it robs you from your humanness. It steals away those things that make you unique. You define yourself, after all, by the things that grant and give you pleasure. But these Israelites have forgotten that they have allowed the existence of what they lack to define who they are. 
And so now they have begun to crave food, food different than manna. They are craving and complaining. They are craving and complaining because they want quail. And God gives them quail. God gives them quail in order for them to fill their bellies. What is it that's causing you restlessness? In this society that prioritizes keeping up with the Joneses, what is it that you're trying to feel and fill that hole in, your, in the pit of your stomach with? Is it more wealth? A bigger house? More security? A vacation? A new car? The completion of a degree? And the pursuit of all these things is good. But when it begins to rob you of your rest and produces restlessness, it steals your individuality. And here's the reality. These things that we crave, these things that rob our rest, these things that steal our individuality, they will never fill the pit that exists in our stomach. We overindulge. Notice what happens as you continue reading the story. God is going to give them quail. And in verse 18, it says, God is speaking to the people of Israel. It says, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow when you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat and you will eat it. And it's interesting. It's interesting that as the quail comes down, day after day, and as they begin to eat and overindulge indulge during that month, as they gorge themselves, restlessness is still there. The story ends, and the chapter of the quail concludes, in the following way. Verse 32. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. Then they spread them out all around the camp. But, what, but while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burnt against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. So notice what has happened. The Israelites feel restless. First, we don't know for what reason. Now they're restless because they don't have food to eat. And in both cases, they go and they groan and complain against God. God then attempts some corrective measures in order to restore the balance in relationship, in order to restore them to rest. The Israelites hear this and they come back to God and then the rhythm of life continues with, a, with habits that can only be defined as unhealthy. The people continue to, to groan and complain. So first it was nothing, now it's quail. Numbers 12, you have the leaders of the nation, Aaron and Miriam, and they walk into Moses' tent. And as they walk into Moses' tent, they begin to complain. 
Now Moses, verse 3, is a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And at once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out, and then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent, summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. When, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord burned against them. This is the third time in two chapters that that grammatical construction appears. The anger of the Lord burnt against them. And the anger of the Lord is burning against them because of the restlessness. Now they're not complaining about quail. They're not complaining about some unknown malady. They are complaining because Moses has a special gift. Moses has this intimacy with God. Moses sees God face to face. Aaron and Miriam do not. So three, two things begin to come to, out to the surface. First and foremost, these things that we're always chasing are not going to fill a pit in our stomach. They're not going to fill what C.S. Lewis calls the God-shaped hole in your heart. Secondly, rest is an opportunity to reconnect with God. Restlessness provides an opportunity to complain to God. My parents always used to say, idle hands. And I understand that saying a bit better now. You see, when you're constantly restless, when you're constantly focusing on that which you do not have, the opportunity for complaining arises. Third story. The people, again, at the cusp of Canaan are, are sent out into the land to observe the land. And they come back. The spies come back with a report. A report of the richness and beauty of Canaan. A report of milk and honey, wafers. A report that ought to create rest and respite. But instead of that, restlessness again invades the heart of the people. They again groan and complain. They again wish that they were to go back to Canaan, that they were to turn back to Canaan and go into Egypt. They again are unwilling to enter into what the author of Hebrews called calls Yahweh's rest. Caleb and Joshua remind the people that God has already given them the land. But the people want to hear, well, they want to hear, they want to hear language of restlessness. They are so invested in their habits, their habits that constantly move them to forget that God has created us to experience peace and tranquility. They are so accustomed to the hustle and bustle that again, 
Again, they turn away from God. God speaks to Moses and Aaron in Numbers chapter 14, verse 26, and says, How long? How long will I hear the grumbling of these Israelites? Now notice, notice that throughout this particular pericope, a certain rhythm begins to unfold. First, they complain for something that they don't know. Next, they complain because they have nothing to eat, or at least they don't have a menu that is appealing to them. After that, they complain because their relationship with God isn't as close as someone else's relationship with God. And finally, they complain because God's promises of rest don't meet their expectations. And the point that Numbers is trying to make, dear friend, is if you want to focus on restlessness, there's always going to be something to complain about. So today... Today, the God that delivered Israel from Egypt wants to invite you into his rest. And so he wants to provide for you an alternative to complaining. And that is complying. Complying with the plan that God has for your life. Recognizing that rest, rest is about your capacity to trust in God. And compliance can only occur through trust. And so the issue of these Israelites that continue to complain and fail to comply is an issue of trust. So can you trust God enough? Can you trust God enough to introduce a rhythm of rest into your life? Can you trust God enough? to allow him to take the reins. Joey, can we trust God enough to do that? Mm, that's a good question. You know, trust, rest is really an act of trust, mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, I remember, I feel like last time I talked about John Ortberg, I'm talking about him again, but he, he describes how sleep actually is an act of trust mm -hmm. because what it says is that um, I trust that even though I'm not working on my behalf while I sleep, God is, mm -hmm. right? So I'm able to rest because God is able, mm. is big enough to care for me while I mm. sleep and rest. So, wow. Yeah, I love the rhythm of rest and um, rhythm of life that you talked about here. And it seems like, I mean, we, we can point at the Israelites and point fingers and say that they were, you know, they just created for themselves this rhythm of restlessness. But I wonder, do we ever do the same for ourselves? Create a rhythm of restlessness in our lives? Yeah, we do, don't we? Mm -hmm. And we look at these Israelites and we say, again, and it's the same thing, yeah. right? God says, okay, do you want quail? I'm going to give you quail. Mm -hmm. um, do you want Canaan? I'm going to give you Canaan. Do you want to see me in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of smoke? I'm going to do that for you. And even as God is providing all these things that they say they want, um, they're not happy. Yeah. They don't, they're not at peace. And I think we do the same thing, don't we? God mm. says, okay, what do you need? Mm. And then God gives us all these things. I mean, think about how blessed we are, Joey, to live in this time in human history. Mm -hmm. uh, Healthcare, 
very low infant mortality. Most of our friends out there know where their next meal is coming from. We have shelter. We have some degree of security. Of course, life isn't perfect, but God has gifted us so much. And so instead of resting in him, it seems like we constantly are enmeshed in the cycle of restlessness. (laughs) It's true. Um, (laughs) I remember hearing a uh, comedian talk about how spoiled humans mm. really are and he 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 used the illustration of um flying an airplane he says you know we get on an airplane and if the plane is delayed like 15 minutes we get so angry like i can't believe <laughs> i have to wait 15 minutes sitting on this plane and, and, and or if there's no wi-fi right <laughs> yeah like all of this you know wi-fi on planes didn't even exist right. like 10 years right. ago but now that we have it we feel like oh my goodness the wi-fi isn't working we can't connect with people for two hours or four hours or whatever and he says do you realize that flight that you take from Los Angeles to New York that, you know, you're delayed 15 minutes for that takes four hours to fly, fly in used to take years, mm-hmm. you know, and you would dra- travel on a covered wagon from New York to, mm-hmm. to, to, to the West Coast and, and people would like had babies on that trip. Mm-hmm. They would, people would die. You'd end up in that. If you ever made it to the the West coast, you would end up with a completely different group than you began right. that journey with. And now we can make that trip in like four hours, five hours, six hours. Um, you know, it's a miracle that we can fly. And yet we complain when we have to wait 15 minutes, 30 mm. minutes, an hour. Right. Isn't that though, what's happening in the, in this text that I, as I was reading uh, yesterday, I found it just so, so interesting how it kind of starts building in a crescendo. So first you have, they're complaining. We don't even know why they're complaining, but they're complaining. So God says, okay, here's some manna. And they're like, well, the manna's not good enough. Oh, we need something else. And then it's like, okay, well, here I am. Well, that's not good enough. We need something more. And then he says, well, okay, so Here's quail, here I am, here's Canaan, and that's not good enough. We need something else. And so I think uh, what what both the Bible and this comedian are trying to say is if you're constantly focused on what you don't have, Mm. you're never going to be at rest. Um, And so rest is not only an issue of trust, it's an issue of focus. Yeah, that's so powerful. If you're always focused on what you don't have, you'll never be satisfied, right? Because there's always more that we can have. Mm-hmm. But where do you think that comes from? This this inability to be satiated, to always want more. You know, that there's that saying, the grass is greener on the other side, right? Why do we constantly look to the other side? Mm. Why do we always, I mean, God even makes it into a, a one of the Ten Commandments, right? That do not covet, right? Mm-hmm. Um what why, why is that a part of us where does that come from this this desire always desire for more for different for better where does that come yeah. from yeah i think it comes from a couple of places um joe you were talking about trust right mm-hmm. and i i think part of it is it it takes this big existential kierkegaardian that's a mouthful a leap of faith yeah in order to simply say, God's gonna, God's gonna provide all my needs. God's gonna give me joy, and joy abundant. Wow. So that's gonna take that's gonna take a leap. Mm. And I think a lot of us find that particular premise scary. Yeah. And so we say, no, 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 no. That's that's too frightening for me. 
I want to be in control of my joy and my joy abundance. Mm -hmm. And so if I work hard enough, mm -hmm. I'm going to find things that fill that hole. I'm going to be able to gather enough quail mm -hmm. so that I never want meat again in my life, as we read in the story, when the problem isn't really meat. Yeah. It's something else. And so I think that's part of it. Part mm -hmm. of it also comes from our lack of trust. Mm -hmm. Uh, in God, I think the other the other issue with with uh, people that are always kind of hoping and expecting uh, that the grass is greener on the other side is because once you're actually invited in to dwell in this ex experience of complete and total rest, the kind of rest that the author of Hebrews, for example, speaks about. Now you have to take responsibility for your relationship with God. You're called to respond to that rest in some way, mm -hmm. right? Um, the purpose of Sabbath and, and the, the experience of Sabbath demanded something from the Israelites. It didn't just demand that they cease doing their activities. Mm -hmm. It also demanded that they, in turn, exemplify grace to other people by allowing them to cease their That's activities. True. And so I think part of it is the trust part, mm -hmm. um, that we don't trust God enough to say, okay, we want to leave you in control of our joy and joy abundant. Mm -hmm. And the other part is we simply don't want to take responsibility for what a life of rest demands from us. And so we decide to do every, anything under the sun to avoid those two realities. I don't know. What do you think? Wow, I think those are both really powerful. You know, when you were talking about um, the lack of trust, it kind of reminded me of um, going to distribute food to the homeless. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've ever done that before, um, these people that don't know where their next meal is going to come from, when you provide them food, they just want to take as much as they possibly mm -hmm. can, right? So in order to make sure that as many people get the food as possible, we, we, we limit how much they can take, knowing that a lot of times when they take too much, a lot of this food doesn't last. It's going to rot. Mm -hmm. It's going to waste away, right? Kind of sounds like what happened with manna, right? <laughs> when, when people hoarded yeah. too much. Yeah. But, but when you have that scarcity mentality, you, you feel the need to hoard in order to provide your, for yourself in the future because you never know when the next meal is going to come. Mm -hmm. And it seems like what you're saying is, we sort of live with that scarcity mentality ourselves when it comes to God. Because if we truly believe that God is going to provide for our needs, he's going to provide for our wants in the future, then we wouldn't feel the need to hoard and constantly look out for something better for ourselves, mm -hmm. something more for ourselves. So our lack of trust is what it, what what mm. invites us, where it, it demands of us to go out and get more and more for ourselves and even hoard to the to, to the point where we waste a little mm. bit, you know? I mean, we sometimes, if, you, if you've ever seen a kid that hasn't had candy in a long time and mm. then you give them access to a bowl of candy, all of a sudden they're mm. going to grab as much as they can, way more than they could possibly yeah. eat. You know, you see that with pinatas, right? You break the pinata <laughs> and it's like a, it's like a free for all. Yeah. That's like the basis human um, uh, instincts that come out when the pinata bursts, yes, right? It doesn't yes, matter yes, who's yes, in your yes. way. You're pushing people. You're grabbing yes. as much as you, you may not even like the candy, but you see <laughs> somebody else it. grabbing, you you take that candy. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that 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 scarcity mentality that comes from the lack of trust. 
And isn't it lack of trust because we don't understand the goodness of the God mm. we serve? Mm. Um, as you were talking about children, yeah. a book uh, that was written during World War II by a uh, army nurse, her name's uh, June Wadley, it's called Bedpan Diaries. Mm. And Wadley's uh, one of the first medical professionals that actually walks into um, one of the sub-encampments at Buchenwald. And she sees these emaciated uh, corpses and, and in heartbreaking detail, she begins to talk about how the only way you can tell the living from the dead is that the living will feverish, feverishly hoard. Um, so they can't tell somebody's alive until um, you actually walk up to them and you give them a piece of candy is what, what she did. And... They wouldn't eat the candy. They would put, and she, she, heartbreaking detail, they would put the candy under the pillow or hide it in their clothes because they didn't think they were going to get any more. Mm. And that's, I think, because they had been so accustomed mm. to the brutality of mm. the Nazis that they couldn't believe in the goodness and the selfless, selflessness mm. of these medical professionals that had come to liberate the camps. And I think we've uh, bought into the scarcity mentality, as you mm. call it, because we believed in this lie that the enemy has sold to us, mm -hmm. right? And then it, uh, one that says that grace and mercy are a commodity that you only extend to those people that agree with you. Yeah. And that because we extend grace and mercy only to those who agree with you, mm. God operates in the same way. And so... Mm. Uh, just as you were talking about, I think that a lot of our trust issues with God um, that prevents us from having a true experience of rest would be resolved if we understood the true goodness of who God is. That's so true. And that bleeds into that your second point from before, which is that we re, re, we resist resting because it it requires us to provide rest for others as well and when we have scarcity mentality for ourselves it's hard to to be gracious and generous with time and and resting to to other people as well so man that scarcity mentality so so is that it how do we then reorient our pathways so that we start seeing the goodness of god mm. that we start believing in the goodness of god so that we don't feel the need to hoard mm. and to, to live with the scarcity mentality. Yeah. You know what I love about the passage we studied in, uh, in Numbers mm. is that all through those stories, amidst people that are restless, you also have examples of people who truly understand who God is. Mm. So you have elders who are praying to God, even as people are complaining about That's food. So you have a Moses who understands who God is, even as Aaron and Miriam are complaining about the perceived differences. You have a Caleb and Joshua who, who accurately report who God is, even when 10 slaves are saying, we are never going to be able to overtake the land. Mm. So my feeling is, Joey, that we... We do that by engaging in this process that I know you're very interested in. Um, it's this process of discernment. Mm. And that process requires that we find people in our life 
in our lives who will push against the narrative of scarcity, mm. uh, that we find the Caleb's and the Joshua's or the Moses or the 70 elders that are actually understanding who God is mm. and who can speak that reality into our lives. And as we find them, mm. then the responsibility and the onus is on us to become that for somebody else that is maybe struggling with, mm. these, with the same concept of scarcity. So that's something that that comes to my to mind as we're as we're kind of living in in breathing in in this passage, in uh, Numbers twelve thirteen and fourteen. Yeah, that's so powerful. That the role that community plays in all of this, that if we're surrounded by pe- constantly surrounded people who, by people who are living in the scarcity mon- mentality, we're going to live that way too. Mm-hmm. But if we're living with people, surround ourselves with people who are living attuned to God, then it's going to change our perspective as well. Yeah, when you bring up Moses in this passage, there is this contrast that you see between Moses's response to people prophesying, right? Because that's what Miriam and um, and uh, Aaron, Aaron were jealous mm-hmm. of, right? Was that this direct connection that mm-hmm. Moses had with God? And then m- these two men in the previous chapter, mm-hmm. they they start prophesying, and Joshua is like, "Should sh- we should go and tell them to stop?" Right. And Moses' response is, "Are you jealous on my account?" Yeah. Is because because he realizes. Who cares if they're, they're prophesying? That doesn't take away from my connection to wow. God, right? And so it shows the the broad perspective that Moses had, that he saw God as this generous God. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of it, I, I think, has to come with that connection to God, right, as well, that he's he also took time to to experience the goodness of God and the the riches riches of God in his life. And you know, you you talked about in the beginning this um, this this idea of the routines of our lives, and how the routines of our lives kind of put us on autopilot at times, and we just kind of fall into those ruts of our. I, I when you were telling this story, I remember um, this one time where I was supposed to drive. I was living in Alhambra, which is in San Gabriel, um, uh, a little bit between Los Angeles and here. Right. So it's it's halfway, you know, a part way between. And I would drive every day to church. And so that's that was my routine. But on this day, I needed to drive out to Loma Linda for a Bible study. But, you know, I was thinking about my Bible study. I was driving and, and thinking about my Bible study. And then all of a sudden I pulled up to church. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what am I doing yeah. here? I, I drove the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah. I drove west when I needed to drive east. Yeah. Because my mind was on autopilot right. and we fall into these ruts. And it is so true. The pathways that we create for ourselves, um, unless we're conscious about recreating those pathways, mm. that's that's the way mm-hmm. that we flow. And I wonder how we are training ourselves to, to live in a scarcity mm. mindset. How we're training, like you said earlier, how we're training ourselves to be in this hustle and bustle mindset where we feel like we always have to be constantly going. What routines are we putting in our lives to do that? And then how do we reform those routines to have more of a generous mindset? Mm. Mm. What are the practices that we can engage in to be more engaged with the fact that God is a big God? Wow. So I think, Joey, that is so true, not only because I think all of us at some point in our lives have gotten to a particular destination and said, ah, I wasn't supposed to come here. Yeah. 
Um, I did that and when we moved from Loma Linda, I found myself several times knocking on the door of my old home and, and saying, wait, I, I don't live here anymore. I live somewhere else. Yeah. Um, I think I think the way in which you break from that is you, you have to question, first and foremost, the narratives that you continue to tell yourself, mm -hmm. right? Um, restlessness, I think, comes... And, and this scarcity mindset mm -hmm. comes because we are operating under a framework that values and prioritizes competition. Mm. And when, when you're thinking about it, you're restless because you think that you're in competition with a slew of other people for resources that are finite, mm. right? And so you're going to be fighting to, to catch your piece of the American pie. Mm -hmm. Rest comes from a completely different mindset. Rest and a mentality of abundance mm. comes not from a framework of competition, but rather from a framework of collaboration. So mm. when you see that resources aren't finite, that they're infinite, then we're no longer having to secure our piece. We're actually more engaged in I think nurturing the connections that we're establishing with each other. And so instead of competing, we're collaborating. Mm. I think then the question that we need to ask is, are we telling ourselves, in the, is the narrative we're telling ourselves rich in competition or collaboration? Mm. And if it's rich in competition, then what do I need to do in order to move away from that? Because my guess is going to be that competition is going to breed restlessness and it is going to breed scarcity. Mm -hmm. Whereas co collaboration engenders, wow. it, it engenders trust, mm -hmm. doesn't it? And it engenders abundance mm -hmm. and, it in, and ultimately it creates rest. Wow, challenging the narrative. That, that reminds me of a book I read about um, change theory. Mm -hmm. And it talks about how the reason why, you know, th there's often, we, we tell ourselves, this is what we want, but then we sabotage ourselves mm -hmm. from getting that, right? Like th this happens with you know, losing weight all mm, the time, all right? The time. Right, we say we wanna be at a healthier weight, but then we sabotage ourselves. Mm -hmm. And according to this change theorist, the reason why we sabotage ourselves is because we have competing commitments, right? We're committed to other things that are in direct opposition to that, right? And so like uh, my, my desire is to eat healthier, mm -hmm. but, but I find myself eating at McDonald's all the time. <laughs> That's right. So then the reason why it's because there is some kind of competing commitment. Right. It's a commitment to maybe flavor or it's a commitment to um, feeling, feeling good about ourselves. Like the food actually makes, there's something, there's a competing right. commitment. And then behind that competing commitment, they say, is what you were talking about is a big assumption. It's an assumption that the only way to get this is to do this, oh. right? The only way to really feel good about myself is to eat French fries at 11 o'clock at night, right? There is some kind of big assumption that we're holding that that um, the only way to really enjoy my food is to eat um, a, a, a Big Mac, right? There is a big assumption. And so when we identify that big assumption, the, then the next step is what you're talking about is to challenge it, to challenge it and say, is that big assumption really true? Is it really true that the only re way that I'm going to enjoy my food is to e eat a Big Mac? You challenge it and say, okay, what if just for this week I test out and try other foods, like try to eat some healthy foods and see if they actually taste good or not, right? 
test that big assumption, but it comes to that those practices. And I think when we talk about that competition versus collaboration, a lot of times we compete because we think that's the only way to get what we want, to get what we need. Mm. But what if, what if we just tested that assumption? And what if we tested the assumption that we had to be busy all the time in order to be able to be successful? What if we tested that assumption by taking a Sabbath, right? Taking a, a moment of rest, just challenging those big assumptions. Wow. Well, that I think is is what Israel can't do for some reason, um, because testing the assumptions means, and and we're going to go back to this, right? It it forces you into a space of uncertainty, because hmm. I know French fries. I know what French fries taste yes. like. Yes, I know. I know how good they are. Um, I don't know what. I don't know what carrots at eleven p.m. are going to do for me. <laughs> Um, and I think I think that's what keeps us tethered mm-hmm. to to scarcity and to behaviors and habits and rhythms of life that are unhealthy. The fact that they're known. Mm-hmm. It's not that they were having a great time in Egypt. See, in this in this particular yes. passage, four times <laughs> we want to go back to Egypt, and it's like, don't you? Re- you were miserable in Egypt, <laughs> but we know Egypt. Yeah. We know what Egypt has to offer. And yes, it makes us miserable. Yes. But we'd rather be miserable than not knowing. Mm. And I I just wonder, Joey, in your mind, how do we get just very practically, how do we conquer that fear mm-hmm. of the unknown? Because I think that it's that fear that pushes you and, and keeps you, I think, from challenging these assumptions that actually are going to develop healthier narratives and, and make us happier and more, and more complete and more uh, self-determined individuals, if you will. So how do we beat this, this constant fear that we have of not knowing? Hmm. I mean, that fear is hard. And if I knew the answer to that, I think I would be a very rich man. <laughs> But I think maybe one possible way to do that um, is there's there's a phrase that we we like to repeat because it um, a professor from um, Fuller Scott Cremode he he used it all the time and it's the phrase experiment on the margins, the margins. yeah experiment on the margins I think a lot of times what overwhelms us is we feel like we have to start with a big change. Mm-hmm. But what if we experimented on the margins? And that means that we, we start with something that costs us very little to test out, right? Um, it doesn't cost a lot, for example, to instead of just for one day, instead of eating French fries, um, eating like um, air fried, air fried like sweet potatoes, I don't know. Or I mean, at least t- taste wise. Or uh, instead of um, instead of um, feeling like we were have to constantly be busy, to take a five minute minute break to talk to God in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, these are low cost experiments that we just try and see what kind of impact it does it make. Does our productive productivity go down drastically when we take just that five minute break? Does it does it mean our whole day is thrown off? We just test those assumptions with these little type, little, little experiments and see the impact that it makes. And then if it does, we find ourselves, it actually doesn't really hurt my productivity that much. 
then maybe we take a little bit of a bigger step and see how impacted does it, you know, if I take a 10 minute break or take a, a, a lunch once a week, you know, to, to read my Bible as I'm, as I'm eating, what difference will that make? Mm -hmm. You know, these little tiny, tiny experiments and, 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 you know, that's why I think the psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say devour a feast <laughs> and see that the yeah. Lord. Says, Just take a taste, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. take oh. a sample and see how good the Lord is. Wow. And we, we, we do these little experiments on the margin to overcome the fear of change. That is so powerful. And it's, I think, so helpful in allowing us to, to begin to deconstruct these big assumptions that we make, because those big assumptions are about everything. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not, hey, um, I'm hungry. I want to go back to Egypt. Or, hey, um, these people are, are, they have fortified cities. I want to go back to Egypt. Maybe it's, hey, these people are really strong. I'm going to see if, I'm going to see how much uh, resistance I have as I cross into Jordan. Mm. We're not talking about conquering the whole land. We're mm -hmm. just talking about getting across the river. Mm -hmm. And I think if you're if you're doing it step by step by step, mm -hmm. um, that the process of of challenging these assumptions becomes much easier. Mm -hmm. The other thing, Joey, and I think you you've uh, said this and and you remind us of this all the time, is that you improve at what you measure. And so it doesn't work if you simply say ah. I'm going to try and eat air fried sweet potatoes once a, once a week. And you're like, that didn't really work. I'm going to go back to French fries. I think we constantly need to remind ourselves mm. that we are in this process. Mm. And as the process from restlessness to rest moves, we need to be consistent in recognizing that these are small incremental steps, but they're incremental steps that need to be made. Mm -hmm. And so you continue measuring them, mm -hmm. and then you reflect upon what God is doing and will do. Wow, powerful. Yeah, I love how you, you, you talked about breaking down the steps. Because, you know, we this is nothing new. We do this all the time with our kids, you know, like when our kids are learning how to bike and they're a little bit scared. We don't tell them, oh, yeah, you need to just learn on your, you just need, we give them the big bike with the pedals. And, you know, we don't do that, right? We start with training wheels. We take off training wheels. They have those glider bikes right. now that they can just get to learn the balance. You know, we, we stand next to them holding. We do it step by step to help them get used to it. And I think we need to give ourselves a little bit of grace, too, when we take these steps, too. Yeah. It's just do it step by step. So, my dear friends, do it step by step. God is going to give you rest. Maybe it's not going to be the rest that the author of Hebrews talks about, but maybe it can just be something small this week. Joey, can you close us with a word of prayer? Yeah, happy to. Dearly Father, we want to thank you so much for being such a good God. Sometimes we forget how good and great you are. We get so admired in our scarcity mentality that we forget that you are the God that owns a cattle on a thousand hills. You are the God that owns everything in the universe. And that is the God that we serve. And so as we start to challenge some of these assumptions about what we need to do to, for ourselves to be successful or to be able to thrive, um, we ask for your presence and your goodness to be with us. Help us to have the courage to take these small steps that build our trust in you is our prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen. Oh, may God abundantly give you grace and the rest that you so deserve. We'll see you next week. Thank you.